Our scripture reading comes from Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad in all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It is good to be back after a couple of weeks away. Uh, it's really, it's, it, I feel like I'm having to introduce myself to people who've been here for a while. By the way, my name's Jeff. You know, I haven't seen me for a while, but uh, yeah, I'm a pastor here. If you don't know me, or even if you do, I guess I am as well. Um, and it is, uh, boom, boom. Um, uh, it's really good to be back, and it's good to be back to be looking at this psalm with you. This is um, a remarkable psalm. It's one that, just to kind of give you a heads up, it's kind of like we find ourselves going to kind of go through a dark tunnel, but just know that there is kind of a bright spot at the end, but it is a rather sober psalm. And so to prepare our hearts to consider God's word, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, this psalm reminds us from the very beginning that you are our dwelling place. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God and no one else is. And so we need you. We need to know you. We need to love you. We need to be changed by you. And we need you to help us to do all of that. And so we ask, Lord, please, that you would draw us near to yourself that you would help us to be shaped by you as we hear your word together. Lord, please help me to speak faithfully and clearly uh, so that you would be glorified and we, your people, would be made more like Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've come to realize that I'm not always good at paying attention to unpleasant details. 
I think perhaps I first began noticing this when I started driving. The first car I was ever allowed to drive was our red family minivan. And minivans get a bad rap, but they're great at transporting people. So it was fun, but it also was a terribly unreliable car. And I remember there was one point where we were driving home from youth group and I, one of those dummy lights came on. You know, you know those ones on the dashboard that might say like low tire pressure or you're almost out of gas? Well, this one said low oil. And I didn't know what to do about it. I was 17. I figured I've got two miles to go. I will just power through. I'm sure if I just ignore it, there won't be any problem. Well, our engine had to be rebuilt. And I'm still continuing to be grateful that my parents were not more angry at me ignoring this unpleasant detail at the time. You would think I had learned my lesson at that time, but almost 10 years later, we're in Sydney, and there's this kind family who gave us, uh, loaned us one of their cars so that we could get around, and actually especially so we could drive to the church, which is an hour away where we were working. The only problem is this was a hunk of junk. I mean, it was this old, white, Mitsubishi Colt four-speed manual. We had to clutch start that thing so many times. But for some reason, and I don't know what we were thinking, we decided that when a friend of ours invited us to his parents' beach house, which is eight hours away, sure, we'll take this car and, take, and go there. So we drove, and after a certain while, I noticed that the temperature gauge, which I don't think I'd ever looked at in any car before in my life, was pointing to that red H. I'm like, oh, this can't be really good. But the car was running great. So I figured I would just ignore this because, you know, it's probably not a big deal. And we made it to the place we were. And we made it halfway back until, like, steam was literally coming out of all of the vents. And I knew this wasn't a good sign. So we pulled over and uh, the, and the gas station. Because, you know, before, I had no idea exactly what to do. We didn't have cell phones. I couldn't look it up on Google and find out what you're supposed to do. So I just went to a gas station. And they kind of carefully opened the radiator and said, there is absolutely nothing in here. And we couldn't start the car again. And we were stuck in this town in the middle of nowhere called Ulladulla. That's, you know, you have towns like this in Australia with no public transportation, just kind of like our suitcases on the road, kind of what do we do now? Called a friend who was kind enough to drive the two and a half hours he had to drive to get us home. It is not a good thing to ignore unpleasant details. They usually come back to haunt us, don't they? Yet we do, all of us do it, or at least many of us do it. I know I'm not the only one. I remember a friend of mine was given a credit card as a teenager, which is a terrible curse to give a teenager. And he just bought everything. Like he bought a brand new subwoofer for his car. He took his friends out to everything. And he just decided that he wouldn't pay attention to that slowly growing negative balance in his credit card account until, of course, he couldn't charge anything more. And he realized he couldn't avoid this unpleasant detail. And he started paying it off month after month after month. Maybe you have before uh, avoided the unpleasant detail of, of when your tooth is aching. It's like, oh, it doesn't feel quite right, but I, I really don't want to go to the dentist, so I'll just power through it and it will probably go away and a couple months later, welcome to the root canal. It's you know, not a good thing to ignore unpleasant details, but we all do it. Uh, we do it with medical signs that we just hope are going to go away. We do it with things that are kind of falling apart in our house that we just kind of ignore. We, we can even do it in our relationships. Sometimes people in marriages have something that's not going well, but they just think that if they don't pay attention, it will go away. We avoid paying attention to unpleasant details, unpleasant truths. 
Perhaps the most obvious, clearest example of this is how we generally avoid paying attention to death. Now, let me say, this is one of the weird places that Christians are weird, if you think about it, because we're, we're talking about death far more than is normal. I mean, we sing songs about death. If you've sung Rock of Ages, we say, when I draw this fleeting breath. Every week we're talking about death. At least we're talking about the death of Jesus. But that isn't normal, isn't it? In general, we don't talk about death. It's a strange thing because in this time where there's so little that people have in common, this is one thing we all have in common. But it is not the common ground that we use for small talk. Hey, tell me what you're thinking about your death. It's not something we're going to do because we have kind of this this implied agreement, let's just not talk about it. Let's just pretend that it isn't here. And the reason, of course, is because it's, it's unpleasant. Our, our mortality is not pleasant to consider. I remember when I was in sixth grade, that was the first time that the reality of death really hit home. I wonder if you can remember a time where things clicked for you. And I was freaked out. I suddenly realized, you know, my parents could die. I could die. And I couldn't sleep. I, you know, I would knock on my parents' door, and like daily after day I would do it. And they're like, okay, we've kind of told you all that we can, and it just took me a while. But eventually, I think I did what pretty much all of us do. And that is I just started learning how to push the reality of death to the background so that I wouldn't have to think about it so much. And isn't that oftentimes the way that we cope with our mortality? We just keep our focus on the short term. I've got this deadline this coming week. Sometimes it's even trivial things. Are the Cubs going to win the World Series? What's the new Star Wars movie going to be like? We think maybe a little bit beyond that. None of these things are bad, but we keep our minds limited so that even if we're looking somewhat long term, it's just as far as our kids going to college or our retirement. But we almost never think beyond that because we prefer to avoid thinking about this unpleasant truth. Now, sometimes we can't avoid it. Sometimes it kind of comes breaking through this wall that we've set up around ourselves. We drive by a funeral home or a cemetery, and suddenly we have memories of when we were last there, or we consider what might be in the future. Sometimes it breaks through even more terrifyingly. Just a few months ago, a friend of mine who's a pastor in the PCA in Crete couldn't finish his sermon. He was prayed over. He just couldn't put together words. And it was discovered that he had uh, terminal cancer. And so now he and his family are wrestling with the sober reality that he could die anytime soon. Of course, that's true for any of us isn't it? We just, we just try not to think about it. Or sometimes we, we try to kind of put a euphemism over it. We try to pretend that it's not a big deal. You hear people talking about how it's natural. It's all part of the circle of life. Or, or Steve Jobs in his famous commencement uh, address spoke of how death is very likely the single best invention of life. It's life's change agent. It clears out the olds to make way for the new, and that's this nice sentiment, but, but deep down in our souls, we cry out, no, because even the thought of death makes us groan. We know it's not natural. 
And we see that same sentiment, that same groaning in our passage. You might have noticed that this psalm that was just read, this psalm about mortality is a psalm of Moses. It's the only psalm written by Moses in our Psalter. And it makes sense that Moses is the person who wrote this psalm because for the last chapter of Moses' life, he was essentially a hospice worker for an entire nation. Because Israel, when they failed God, when they disobeyed him in terms of trying to enter the promised land, God sent them back out and said, you are going to keep wandering for 40 years until everyone in this generation has died. And so what are they doing for 40 years? They are waiting to die. And so as Moses is leading his people, he is groaning as he is watching death, as he is waiting for death. And and can't you hear the groans? I mean, he takes us to a hard place in these verses if we allow ourselves to go there. Uh, The first groan, verse 3, speaking to God, he says, You return man to dust. He means this quite literally. The, The bodies that are so alive and vibrant will one day become powder. It's almost unbearable to consider. Second half of verse 5, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and is withered. And he's talking about aging, isn't he? I mean, there is nothing more alive and vibrant than a baby. It is filled with life, but it doesn't take long before not only growing up takes place, but aging and We start finding ourselves with less energy and more aches and less hair and and less health. And we find ourselves eventually being so worn down that we are like that brown grass that once was vital but now is dried up and withered. And these years that we have are so short. He says, verse 10, the years of our life are 70. If you're really strong, 80. And we would update that a a little bit now. The years are 80, and if you're really strong, maybe 90. But when you compare it to God, for whom a thousand years are just like a day, we're not imagining it when we say life is short. It, It is short. It is so quick. Verse 9, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. Perhaps you have sat with someone on their deathbed and you've heard how the breathing starts becoming labored and then there's just this last breath, this sigh, and life is spent. Do you hear these groans of Moses? This is not the only truth about life. We know there is joy, there is delight, but it is a truth. And we groan with him when we're willing to look at it. Moses is taking us to a place that is uncomfortable here, but it's not because he's dark or morose or cynical. It's because he believes there's something very important about considering our mortality that actually death is meant to give us wisdom. Did you notice that? I think the very heart of our passage 
is this request in verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. How do we, what does it mean to number our days? It means to count them knowing that there are only so many. That every day we live is one less day that we have. And the request is, help us to number our days. Help us to look at our death in such a way that we grow in wisdom. Death, if we look at it rightly, can make us wise. So how do we do that? Well, we need to understand that verses 11 and 12 actually come together. They're one unit. It begins with this question in verse 11, where verse 11 asks, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Lord, who thinks carefully about your anger? Who thinks about your wrath? And the implied answer to that question is not really anyone. No one really does it. And so verse 12 is kind of the answer to this question. Lord, help me to do that. Help me to so number the days of my life to recognize your anger, your judgment upon my life because my days are numbered. Help me to do that so that I can grow in wisdom. Do you see the connection that's being made? That the fact that we have only a few days is meant to help us to see the judgment of God. That's why he begins in verse 3 with this groan of saying, you say, return to dust. Why does Moses say that that God says that? Because Moses knows how things began, how after Adam and Eve rebelled, how after humanity failed, God cursed humanity with mortality. And he said, from dust you are, from to dust you shall return. See, death isn't just this natural thing that happens because that's the way the world is supposed to be. Death is God's curse upon us for our sin. And we see that even more clearly in verse 7 and following. Verse 7, we are brought to an end, how? By your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. And it's because of our sin you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Moses looks honestly at death, and how does he look at it? When he looks at death, he sees the judgment of God. God's judgment for our failure, for our sin. See, death doesn't just happen accidentally, and it doesn't just happen because the cure for our disease hasn't been found yet. Death is caused by God. It's caused by God because of our sin. And Moses says, we need to see this. We need to look at death honestly, not avoid it or not pretend about it, but to look and to see it as a sign of judgment, because if we do, that will give us wisdom. How? How does this dark contemplation lead us to wisdom? Well, if, if we see this clearly, we realize something incredibly important, and that is that God is God. 
and that nothing else is. When we consider this rightly, we are taught the fear of God, and we so deeply need that for wisdom. Imagine you are at a playground in a busy city. You're watching and you see a mom with a couple of children. She gets distracted and her three-year girl, her old girl just starts running for the street and is about to kind of go right into traffic and you can see the mom just terrified. And what does she do? She yells, no! And she runs and forcibly grabs the child and says, don't you do that again. Now in that moment, that child is probably terrified because she is experiencing anger unlike almost anything she has probably ever experienced. But that anger is good anger. That anger is anger that is meant to lead the child to life and not to death. You and I need to understand that as harsh as death feels, it is God's loving, judging no to our idolatry. It is is his loud no to looking to anything else other than God as God. God is saying, don't look anywhere else to find me. Only I am God. Only in me is life. Death clarifies. Do you know anyone who has ever experienced a near-death encounter? If you have, almost inevitably, when they speak about it, they'll speak about how they saw life differently. They saw life more clearly than before. Suddenly things that once seemed important are now trivial. And if we really stare death with clarity and understanding, we don't just notice the things that are important, but we are forced to consider what is most important. To look beyond even the things that we love, to consider what is the thing that is supremely lovely, that is supremely worthy of our hope and our worship. We are taught to fear God because death makes us honest about things that we're not honest with. I mean, what are things that we are inclined to put our hopes in? Well, we're inclined to put our hopes in our own abilities, aren't we? So much of our life is is based on our own energy and can-do and intelligence. But if we're honest before death, we know we are fighting a failing battle. And everything we have is slowly being lost. We look for life in the good things of this world, and there are so many good things in this world that are worth delighting in. Whether it's the vacations, or whether it's it's entertainment, or our home, these are good things, but, but you and I know that we're being dishonest, aren't we, if we think that's where our hope can be found, because, because it's not true that the one with the most toys who dies wins. And everything that we enjoy just slips through our fingers. We, we take deep delight, perhaps deepest delight of anything in this world in our relationships and family, and it is so meaningful and so important. But but death forces us to be honest there as well, because none of these will we hold on to. Slowly they will be taken away from us, or we will be taken away from them. Death, God's judgment upon our faults, God's declares, that none of these, as good as they are, can be where our ultimate hope is found. Through our life, bit by bit, things are removed from our grasp 
until there is only one thing that remains. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Lord, you, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Sometimes someone might ask, if they're first learning about Christianity or a child, how old is God? And the only right response to how old is God is, wrong question. God has always, always, always been. And he will always, always, always be. He is the one constant. And death makes that clear, doesn't it? Think about it. What do you have? When you draw your fleeting breath, what do you have left? There is only one thing that is left. You still have God. Everything else is gone for that moment. In our life, most things are a trajectory where we're slowly losing things, whether it's relationships that we lose or whether it's, it's our energy that we lose. But there is one thing for Christians that actually changes in the other direction. We actually, throughout our life, grow more and more in love of God and delight in God. And when we die, we see him fully. It's the opposite for God than anything else. See, death clarifies it. It teaches us bit by bit to cling to God alone, to say in our hearts to God, you are God and no other. Teach us so to number our days that we might see this. That's the prayer, the prayer for wisdom of seeing things rightly and seeing things through the fear of God. Now this might seem some dark sober words until we understand something really important. When we finally understand that all we have is God, that he is the one that we can put all of our hope in, then we actually finally understand where our hope actually is found. Because the God that Moses is groaning and crying out to is also the God that Moses knows is able to do what nothing else can do and give supreme and lasting joy. And you notice there is this turning point. After he prays for wisdom, that wisdom leads him to a different prayer, a prayer of longing and a prayer of hope. So the turning point happens in verse 13 as he calls for God to return and, and what he sees is the God who both has judged is also the God who is able to give joy. And so he prays in verse 14, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, so that we may be, rejoice and be glad all of our days. And there's a really intentional contrast here. We've seen before this allusion to the morning. We're normally before like grass that in the morning is bright and vibrant, but by the end of the day, almost everything is lost and we're just like stubble. But he says, God, you can do something different. You are able to give joy that does not fade, that lasts from the morning to the evening, that can satisfy us. God alone can do that. 
Don't we even see evidence of that? Sometimes we might know people who have been in the faith for many years, a maturity so that even at points when they are rocked by crisis after crisis and they are filled with grief, yet at the same time there is this unshakable joy. God, you can do this, Moses says. And God, you are able to provide a permanence that is unlike any other. Verse 17, he prays, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And that prayer for establishing, that's a prayer for permanence. Nothing lasts. Everything we do eventually crumbles. Lord, give us the ability to last so that things will continue from generation to generation to generation. He's asking for things to be eternal and not just temporary. And, and we sing about that, don't we? we? When we sing Amazing Grace, there is this amazing line at the very end, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've still got no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That's permanence. That's our hands, the work of our hands being established. And that's what Moses is longing for. He says, God, as I've come to see that I can put my hope in nothing else, I know that you can do what I long for. And not only can God do it, but God wants to. When he says, satisfy us with your steadfast love, it's a word I've mentioned before, the Hebrew word is hesed, and it's a word speaking of commitment to promises. And so Moses is saying, you have promised, and I am calling on you to satisfy us with the answer to your promise. Moses knows he can hope in God that not only can God give joy and permanence, but somehow, someday, God will. And we see that much more clearly than Moses ever did, don't we? We understand with awe and wonder just how willing our God, the one who judged in love, is also the God who faced that curse head on. I've said this before, but it's so helpful, I think, when we read the Psalms to remember that these Psalms are Psalms that Jesus sung. Jesus groaned, experiencing mortality. The Son of God experienced aches and pains and aging. He groaned before death as he saw someone he loved dying. He wept with us over death. And he tasted the curse of death. Not because he sinned, he was perfect. But because we, the people that he loved, were under a curse and he wanted to take that curse away for us. So at the cross, Jesus defeated death. It is not completely done with. Jesus, the Bible says the last enemy eventually to be destroyed is death, but its power has been removed. So that even if we die, Yet, Jesus says, you will live. On the cross, he tasted our death. He experienced the curse for us. And when he rose again, he began a new age. The age, the year, the day of our Lord's favor. The day where we can experience that 
joy. This is why we can be weird when it comes to death. This is why you and I don't need to avoid thinking about death. Yet, it is awful, and it is right to grieve over it, and it is right to hate death. God himself hates death. He calls it an enemy. But we know that death does not have the sting that it once did because it has been disarmed. And then on the other side of death is life and joy and permanence because our God has been our dwelling from generation to generation and he loves to bless us and he has through Jesus. This psalm is written to make us wise, to strip away the distractions, to strip away the things that we might lean on that we should. And so I hope as you are hearing it, your prayer as mine has been over these last few weeks is teach me to number my days in such a way that I might be wise. I like to even spend just a couple of minutes to have us respond in silence. Death and thinking about it exposes where we have been fools where we have been idolatrous, where we've invested in the wrong things and forgotten that our hope is in God. So I invite you just to take some time as you reflect on what the psalm says to you, to confess to God where you have departed from him, to spend time in confession and repentance, to once again put your hope in the one who supremely can satisfy. And, that, and then I will lead us in prayer following a couple minutes. So would you please confess and pray with me? Lord, with this psalm we pray, we ask, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And we confess that we have avoided. We have not been willing at times to look at what is real. And so, Father, you know how easy it has been for us to invest in things that are not of you, to forget that you are the center of our lives, to forget that you are the one who ultimately can give us real hope and real joy. And so, Father, we ask that you would forgive us. Help us to heed your loving no to our idolatry. Turn us in the right way. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we might rejoice and be glad all our days. Lord, we confess our sin and we entrust ourselves to your love and forgiveness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, hear the good news of the gospel from Romans 5. 
God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God.